consumers can make informed choices when they know that workers are out on the picket line, uh, knowing that scabs are, you know, uh, 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 you know, trying to replace us and continue, you know, get operations to continue as normal. Um, but I mean, if the community also kind of goes to the next level beyond just informed consumer decisions and says, you know what, I want to go that, down that line and I want to make it very hard and very clear for these uh, replacement workers that this company already has workers um, and that uh, what they're doing is causing a lot of harm to the already loyal workforce that has been there for a long time. Um, and that would be, that's the most important thing. I, I can't stress that enough. Like if, if, if lots of people come out uh, in support, uh, then it really does improve our chances of, of winning. So there are things such as um, flying pickets, for example, chasing after scab trucks, but also um, discussing the strike with the taverns or the convenience stores or whoever are the buyers about how they can support the strike or put up posters, whatever, whatever, right? Oh, yeah. Those are all things that we're going to be doing. Oh, yeah. How can our listeners keep in touch, especially if they want to get involved in solidarity actions like Jamie was describing? Oh, yeah. Um, well, um, they can get in touch through uh, uh, a link um, uh, that was set up for uh, solidarity members um, if they want to support us. It is tinyurl.com forward slash Miletus Strike Support. Once again, I'll say it, tinyurl.com forward slash Miletus Strike Support. Uh, that would be the greatest way to help, for sure. Well, that wraps it up for this evening's show. You've been listening to Brian Hawes and Venu Matra, yeah. Teamsters, Teamsters at Miletus Beverage, ready to strike. Thanks to my co-host, Laura Wadlin. I'm Jamie Partridge. This is Labor Radio this Monday and every Monday at 6 p.m. Stay tuned for Prison Pipeline. Everybody, this is Goddess, this is Goddess and She, and you're tuning in to KBOO Portland. Holla to girl. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad, don't you know no one alive can always be an angel? When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Uh, good evening. You're listening to Prison Pipeline here on KBOO Community Radio. My name is Emma, and I use she and her pronouns. Um, today, we're here with Dr. Edwin Nichols. Dr. Nichols, welcome to Prison Pipeline. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be on your program to share concepts and ideas with you. 
Thank you, um, Dr. Nichols. Let's start first. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Okay. Um, I'm a clinical industrial psychologist. I'm working in Washington, D.C. I have a company called Nichols & Associates, which is an applied behavioral science firm. I specialize in doing two things. One is organizational structure, and the other is cultural competence through leadership. I don't do clinical work anymore, but I do sometimes supervise uh, other clinicians who want uh, kind of a senior looking in on some of their cases. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Nichols, um, you've helped to facilitate work around issues of racism and the prison industrial complex. Can you tell us a little bit about your work um, in that area? Okay. Well, as you know, there's a disproportionate number of black males in prison, and their sentences are much longer than for the same um, misconduct as anyone else, they get a longer sentence. All that is very well known, but I think if we're really going to understand relationship between police and African-Americans, we have to go all the way back to slavery. During the period of slavery, there, there, there's a progression of slave laws and these slave laws are intended to take a group of people who were originally indentured servants and move them into a permanent working class of, uh, of people so that you always keep your same working group. You don't have to change it every seven years to a new group. The two groups, black indentured servants free, white indentured servants free, joined to get better treatment from the landowners. And there's Bacon's Rebellion is what that's called. And that was very frightening to the landowners because you had two groups of former indentured servants and they pulled together and they actually burned Georgetown to the ground. British troops had to come in and recapture and retake everything. So that imprint was in the minds of the plantation owners. And from that point on, you give a significant privilege to the white, even though they are lower class indentured servants previously. You give them some edge over blacks. For an example, a white indentured woman, indentured servant woman, now free, black former indentured servant, white, a black, white, if black and white, both former indentured servants, they're washing, they wash clothes. For the black woman, the state takes a tax away from her, which lowers the amount of income that she has by comparison to the white woman who's doing the same task. And these draconian rulings continue until you have the final chattel slavery, where you and all your dependents in perpetuity will be enslaved. Now, that sets up two groups of people 
in competition with each other. Because if you were a free black man and owned property, you could vote and a free white man who did not own property could not vote. So there has to be something and you create a system of what we now call whiteness, which is to give a differential privilege so that even though you can vote and I can't vote, I am better than you because I am white and you're not. Now, as blacks immigrated out of the South, some were already in the North and in other places. Uh, during slavery, you had a night patrol. And the night patrol was the white men who were underemployed or unemployed, and they were given the task of going out at night and finding anyone that was off the property to try to escape. Now, if you were off the property, even if you had a pass, they could take it upon themselves to beat you and to run you back. Now, that idea of a group of people beating someone is what we see today. That has just recently occurred on many occasions. So the night patrol becomes the local police authority in many of these situations after slavery. So the job is of police to control the behavior of blacks, to monitor what they're doing, and then to control, to engender fear by beating, false imprisonment, lynching, whatever's necessary to maintain control. In the North, you had a, a large immigrant population of Irish coming. And the Irish were competing against the Blacks for jobs. The Irish rioted against the Blacks and destroyed the properties that they had in New York and their jobs. Subsequently, the Irish became the police and the purpose of, of the Irish police was to control the black community. And they do it with impunity. So as you think of prisons, pipeline, and so on, you have to remember that the police and the black community are adversarial. It's not like you could go to the police and get help or go to the police and do the protection that others expect. The function of the police is to control the black community. Now, if you have that mindset about what the police do, then you have to figure out how do you keep them employed and how do you fill prisons because prisoner, you can, at one point now, you can own a prison privately. It's no longer a state institution. In addition to that, you have contracts for the work. And if you get paid 30 cents an hour or 35 cents an hour in prison, you get a product, but the product is, doesn't cost very much to the prison. And you can sell desks and other kinds of things that are made in these prisons. 
So now we come to the point of education. There are different epistemological models in terms of how one knows that says in order to know a Chinese character, you must envision the whole character and all of the strokes, and it must be seen simultaneously. Each word in Chinese has its different character. You can have the same basic character where one stroke goes to the left, one stroke goes to the right, and they are completely different words, and they have nothing in common. They don't have the same root stem. Um, they have none of those things. There are no prefixes or suffixes. So that is one epistemological model that requires the capacity to see the whole and all of the parts simultaneously. So if you ask who scores highest on academic tests in the United States, these students, when they study, they study the whole chapter and they study all of the individual exercises and parts until they grasp the whole thing. So it is holes and parts seen simultaneously to grasp the concept. That's the epistemology of Asian culture. Now, let's look at the epistemology of Europeans. European culture axiologically says the highest value lies in the object, and the model is that you count and measure. Why are you counting and measuring as a part of knowing? You count and measure because you want to know the object. In counting and measuring, how many, how much, are they different in what way? And the part that we want to discuss here is the pedagogy of the European count and measure. The count and measure goes then in Western culture, Western civilization, you always go back to the origin of that civilization, to the Greeks. And Democritus told us, he's an atomist, that there are in the great void or ether, there are very small particles that come together and form a configuration. Now, that says parts to the whole. And of course, when the physics of Western culture got to a point where they began to recognize these small particles, they named them atoms. But the important pedagogical thing from that is that Western material is presented as a series of parts that become the whole. Um, you're listening to Prison Pipeline here on KBOO Community Radio. Today we're talking with Dr. Edwin Nichols um, about the school to prison pipeline, and we're doing a historical review of race and racism in America. Okay, so now that we have uh, a, an understanding of the pedagogy of Western school systems in the United States, where materials are presented to you in a series of parts, and these parts become the whole. When you look at the African-American culture, historically, we are holistic thinkers. We look for the big picture. What are you talking about? What is it all about? Give me the big picture. 
And then in methodology, it is critical path analysis, which is cut to the chase in vernacular. If you are now going into the school system, since we're talking about school pipeline to prison, the point of differentiation is the third grade, eight years of age, black males. That's the point at which you begin to get acting out behavior, sent to special ed, special ed right on into the prison complex. All right, let's see what goes on in that grade. I told you about the two epistemological models. One parts to the whole, linear sequential, count and measure. And that's the European method and the, the method for African-Americans is symbolic imagery and rhythm. Now, what is symbolic imagery? It's proverbs and parables. And if you listen to people from the West Indies, they will give you lots of uh, parables. Uh, proverbs and parables increase the knowledge beyond just the written word or the statement that is there. It involves deeper thinking. It, it involves holistic thinking. We don't give very much credence to that because that's nothing that you can count and measure. But that is endemic to one whole part of the population. You can see my hands, but others cannot. So I'm going to go through what I see as the, the beginning part of pipeline to prison. If we have seven steps for an arithmetic problem in the back of the teacher's handbook, the teacher does not know how to do it differently. She just follows those steps and she just teaches those seven steps. In teaching those seven steps, that becomes the rule for the class. Everyone must follow this rule exactly. When you have black students, some of them, we're going to say, we're going to give the name of Leroy to one black student, eight years old, third grade. And he has not understood what he's been given as an assignment. The teacher on Monday gives us an assignment, on Tuesday an assignment, Wednesday an assignment. And he thinks that A and B and C are objects in and of themselves, that they are holistic concepts that you must comprehend because he's a holistic thinker. But the teacher is giving A, B, C as a series of parts that will become the whole at the end of the week. Now, there's a confusion there because he doesn't understand. Once he grasps that she's only giving him a series of parts, he now goes from the 20% 20, the 20 who fail to the top of the 80% who are passing. He's grasped the concept. He's got it and he's running with it. He's very smart. Now, if you have been looking at Leroy all semester and he has been failing and all of a sudden, two-thirds of the way into the semester, he becomes brilliant. He's turning in his homework and everything is going well. Well, 
as a part of our humanity, we are subject to criticize and doubt that he really knows what he's doing. So the first thing that we do is we accuse him of cheating. Now, in the African-American community, if the highest value is in the relationship and you do something that treats me as less than equal, you've treated me with disrespect and that destroys the relationship. So by having me stand in front of class and telling everyone that I cheated, you've broken the relationship that we have. And now with that broken relationship, having been humiliated in class, because you ask me, prove to me how you did it. Well, if he does critical path analysis, just place your fingers in front of you because it's radio concept. In your left hand, we're going one, two, three, four, five fingers and the thumb. And on the right hand, we're going the thumb and the index and the uh, index finger. So that's seven steps. What Leroy does is the baby finger, the index finger, and the index finger of the left hand. So you have the ring finger, middle finger on the left hand that he has skipped over because he's using critical path analysis. You don't need those two to go from step one to four. You don't need three and, and you don't need two and three. That's critical path. And you don't need five and six. You can go to seven. So when you have that situation at eight years of age, he's not able to tell you, I use critical path analysis. Even when he does and the teacher sees she's standing right over him, he's not cheating. It's no way possible. But because she does not understand how he did it, she forces him to try to do the seven steps. And she will not accept it because she cannot tell whether he did it correctly in pattern, not product. That you see is the, that's the dependent variable. If we could do it in terms of product, we don't always have to do it in terms of process to the product. But that's the point at which there's all this calamity and difficulty within the school system. So Dr. Nichols, are you suggesting that if we change our public education system to take into account ideas of cultural competency, that that would have a long-term outcome in terms of rates of incarceration among youth yeah, of color? Yeah, because when you go to, to African countries, when you go to the Caribbean, they may have a curriculum from Europe, England or France, but it's tailor-made to the country and the culture. And look at those countries and tell me if you have the same degree of, of people incarcerated, and you don't, and they're all black. So it's not anything genetic, it's, it's a construct. I mean, what about the role that white supremacy plays in this process? What about that? No, it's, it's not white people per se, it's, it's a system of controlling the black community. So the ordinary white wouldn't have a clue about this and would become very upset if you insinuated that they were a part of this conspiracy. It is the, the ultimate power and control of the state. That's why you call it systemic institutional racism. It's the state that does this. And the 
role of the police is to control the black community. Now, when drugs became available, you did not have airplanes landing in the black community bringing trucks. But historically, we know that there was one president that wanted in the Central America those people to have ammunitions and guns. And what the CIA did was to bring drugs into the black community in California and sell the drugs, taking the money to purchase guns to fight against the rebels in South America. And that's fact. So if you have a culture that brings in things into your community to destroy it, and then you set up laws that say that crack gives you more time in jail than pure cocaine, uh, why would that be? Um, well, if people are buying crack instead of buying pure cocaine, your profits are less. Is that not real? Yeah. Crack cocaine re involves less cocaine. And people who are buying pure cocaine, you don't put them in jail as with the same rate. You can, they can have more cocaine than you can have in small doses of crack. So it's a double punishment. You're not buying our product and we're going to punish you for it. And then also the the idea that they differentiate in some way in terms but it's not that the two drugs differentiate themselves it's the cost of the two drugs yeah something kind of similar is going on now with fentanyl too although people aren't getting prosecuted in the same way it's it's interesting because laws in the united states still punish people who have one gram of uh, crack at the same equivalent as 18 grams of cocaine and um, there's definitely a lot of reform that needs to go on around sentencing regarding I mean all drug sentences so but now go go to the economics of that you see one ounce of crack will get you as high as you want to be but if you have 14 ounces of pure heroin or whatever the number is you make more money selling that than you do on the crack. So if the profit motivation for drug selling is that, then you punish people who use the cheaper drug. Now, let's talk about fentanyl. Columbus, Ohio is the center point, sort of like where everything comes into Columbus, Ohio, and then it's distributed. This was an issue, but as it became an issue for white populations, the use of drugs has now moved from a crime punishable by long terms in prison to a mental health issue. And we need mental health facilities to help. Now, the only difference, the dependent variable there is that you have more whites using fentanyl than blacks. You have large communities of white where there's nobody black living there that are on fentanyl. And so now, the nomenclature has changed. The purpose has changed from a criminal act sending you to jail to mental health where you need not incarceration, but treatment in a mental health facility to help you overcome this scourge of Western civilization. 
<laughs> Dr. Nichols, um, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time for this half hour show. Um, is there a way that people can learn more about some of the 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 teachings you offer if they want to get connected? I know that you offer an institute that people can take to help and learn racism, and you do a lot of teaching. Um, how can people connect with you? Well, um, I would ask uh, Mary Flowers to tell you about that connection, which is your the People's Institute. Thank you. We're going to have, uh, just at the very end of the show here, we're having Mary Flowers join Dr. Nichols to talk about the People's Institute. The People's Institute for Survival and Beyond has a regional network here in the Northwest that includes Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. And we meet, we do a lot of organizing to support organizing organizers throughout the region. And often uh, we have invited Dr. Nichols um, in either virtually or in person. And so the local network in Portland, I'm certain, uh, would be very happy to help to arrange perhaps a, a, a video um, a meeting or um, presentation for a group there in the future. So there, the opportunities are endless. And Thank you, Marion. And how do like so? If people want to connect with the website or find out something can, online, um, how can they do that? Um, I live in Washington D.C., so it's Nichols and Associates in Washington D.C. And um, I'm listed, or they can just ask. They can just uh, look for my phone number, uh, Doctor Edwin Nichols, and you can get me that way. And in order to see the work that I do. You can go on uh, on YouTube, and you can see different lectures at different times in different places. And some of them are old. I have hair. Some of them are more recent. I have less, and I wear glasses now. I am 91, and I don't wear glasses because I have my lenses corrected. <laughs> and I wear a little beard to to give length to my faith in the groups. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on Prison Pipeline. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your morning to, uh, to talk with us. Thank you. Goodbye. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are
on 90.7 FM, K282BH, Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR, Hood River on 91.9 FM. You can follow KBU on all your social media platforms. Just look for KBU 